This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, May 24th, 2016. I'm Caleb Brown. The ruling class that has emerged against the designs of our founding fathers has at least one Achilles heel. Most Americans, when asked, want lower taxes and fewer government services. Larry Lindsay, a former economic advisor to President George W. Bush, is author of the new book, Conspiracies of the Ruling Class. He spoke at the Cato Institute last week. It almost goes without saying that when you look at people in government, they believe they know how to run your life better than you do. Now, I've served in government, and somehow I never actually thought that. I spent most of my time in government trying to beat back the bureaucrats. That was what I thought you were supposed to do in government. I'm, I'm the tribune of the people, and they're the permanent government, and we have tribunes to limit them. But, but that's, not, uh, that's certainly not what the current regime uh, believes. Um, and they do so in such a condescending way, because not only do they think they know how to run your life better than you do. It's basically because they don't think you're pretty incompetent and that they are not only morally superior, but intellectually superior. So of course they should be in charge of the government and of course the government should be running your life. And it's as simple as that. And I think that's what defines an attitude of someone in the ruling class from someone who just serves in government. And I think that's an important uh, distinction. It's whether or not you really think you're a natural ruler or not, or whether you're there, you know, to to do a job. Well, uh, that was the problem. And so I began to do more and more research into why people are angry, and and this led to the book. And then I watched the response uh, starting in July and August, Um, and the people were angry, and how did they respond? Well, they saw on television a guy who was angry. He's always angry. Just watch him, pouting, you know, and all the rest. And then for 13 years, they watched him say, you're fired. What could be better? I'm angry. This guy's angry. And when he gets there, he's going to tell the guys, you're fired. And that's exactly what we need. And I actually think that's as simple as that when it comes to the Trump phenomenon. He has has captured the public uh, imagination. I think the public is right again to be angry. I don't think he's necessarily the ideal solution. And so what I thought the book should do is, first of all, tell people that they're right to be angry, that the ruling class has taken powers the Constitution doesn't give them. They have taken tons of resources. They've taken power and resources. And they've done a lousy job with it. And I highlight the incompetence in the second section. And then in the third section, I say, you know, But if you really want to change something, I don't say, don't vote for the guy who's angry. I was neutral about that and actually wanted those supporters to buy the book, I'll be honest. That was was the true true nature of my intent. Um, It's good self-interest for you, right? I'll admit to being self-interested. I laid out some some plausible reforms that I think need to be made. Uh, They have to do with regulatory reform. Uh, They have to do with budget reform. They have to do with reforming the Fed. Um, And um, that was the book. It was basically, hey, try these if you really want to change the world. So let me, uh, that is the highlight. That is why the book was written. Uh, I'm happy to say it got on the New York Times bestseller list. 
Obviously, the New York Times didn't read it before they put it there, um, or it would have been hopeless. But uh, anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of happy. It's the first time of writing a, a sort of a more of a popular sort of book. Uh, some highlights. Uh, these are more my, my favorite points, uh, and I'm much more interested in allocating time to questions, so I will take less than uh, what you suggested. One of my favorite chapters was um, the progressive superiority complex. Now, this is a literature you can't imagine exists, but it does. It is why liberals are smarter than conservatives. And there are actually academic papers written with empirical evidence to show that liberals are smarter than conservatives. And my favorite article, it was popularized, was in Psychology Today. And it comes down, I'm going to paraphrase the, the heading, which was, of course liberals run academia, run the media, run arts and sciences, and run the government. Of course they do, because they're smarter than conservatives. There obviously aren't enough smart conservatives out there to host those uh, areas. Well, I take a look at how they define liberal. Anyway, it's, 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 it's a great uh, tongue-in-cheek uh, article. Um, if that one doesn't make you mad at them, uh, nothing will. Uh, I do urge you to, A, buy the book. You can then photocopy that chapter and give it to your friends and see what they think. If you want to make them mad, too. Liberals think they're smarter, and that's part of the ruling class. They think they're smarter than the rest of us. Um, they also think they're morally superior to the rest of us, and that is also contradicted by the evidence. But uh, I'll leave it for you to, to find that out in the book. Uh, then in terms of incompetence, um, one area that I've uh, studied all my life is inequality. Um, and uh, there's lots of causes of it, and... Um, one can argue about why inequality is trending up. But I found it interesting because this is what progressives talk about the most. Inequality, inequality, we have to do something about inequality. Well, okay. Problem is that when they get in office, inequality rises faster under progressive presidents than it does under conservative presidents. The Census Bureau puts out three measures of income inequality, uh, the Gini, the log normal, and the, the tile index. And um, under all three, it rose faster under Barack Obama than it did under George Bush. Under all three, it rose faster under Bill Clinton than it did under Ronald Reagan. So, yes, they talk about it, but they're absolutely incompetent about doing something about it. When they get in office so they can do anything they want, inequality gets worse faster than it does under conservative presidents. So no one campaigns on making inequality higher. They campaign on the reverse, but they fail miserably at it. And it's not for want of trying. For example, in the first six years of the Obama administration, Transfer, the annual rate of transfer payments in America rose by $500 billion. We now have 18% of all personal income received in America is a transfer payment. It is not for want of trying 
that the government is failing. It's that they're going about doing it the wrong way. Of course, what they've forgotten, which I think is fairly obvious, is what all those people who are morally inferior and intellectually inferior, i.e. the rest of us, know, is that people most generally don't work for fun. They work for money. They work to pay the bills. So if you give people money not to work, they won't work. And there's a lot of literature out there, including from the Urban Institute, the Hamilton Project, which is uh, Hillary's think tank in waiting, that the marginal tax rate on people making thirty to fifty thousand dollars, if you include the loss of benefits, is fifty to eighty percent. Well, guess what? People don't go to work when tax rates are fifty to eighty percent. So Barack Obama is going to go down as the first president in American history to leave office with fewer two-earner households than when he took office. Two-thirds of all the net household formation under Barack Obama has been in households with zero wage earners. Now, how the heck are you going to create a more equal society when two-thirds of your new families don't have anyone working in them? There's no way you could redistribute money and expect families with no one working in them to sort of move up the income ladder. It just isn't going to happen. So they have a mathematical failure uh, that in spite of their rhetoric, in spite of their will be generous and say good intentions, um, their good intentions lead to failure. And I lay that out in the book. Um, finally, uh, and on a, a somewhat cheery note, I, I look at the politics of this. When voters are surveyed, they invariably think more government is bad for growth, less government is good for growth, Higher taxes are bad for growth. Lower taxes are good for growth. And when the question is put together, would you prefer higher taxes and more government services or lower taxes and less government services, less wins? In fact, the month after Barack Obama beat Mitt Romney, the less government, less services side won by 22 points. Whoa, how can Obama win by four and everything he stood for lose by 22? Well, I concluded it's because that isn't what we're running the campaign on. If we simply run the campaign on less government, more control of your own lives, more control of your own money, and that's it, we win. Oops, I've stopped being an objective observer. Our side, less government wins easily. The other side wins because they like to confuse the issue with a whole lot of micro-targeting stuff, and that's what you're hearing. Oh, they're anti-this and they're anti-that, or they're anti-the other thing, and they hate, and they're haters, and da-da-da, that's, that's the spin. That's how they win. 
So we have to be careful uh, how we win this election. But if we keep it focused on the simple issue of do you want more government or less government, less government will win. And that's why in the end, I think we're going to put an end to the current ruling class. Larry Lindsay is author of Conspiracies of the Ruling Class. This month marks 10 years of the Cato Daily Podcast. Subscribe and share at cato.org slash podcast and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.